welcome to a special Thursday edition of WTBC Radio in beautiful Anywhere, Anywhen, where we uh, have a little bit of a throwback uh, happening, kind of the first time we've done something like this. Uh, this is my uh, original interview with Mac uh, from November of 2015, uh, when we were speaking just after his 20th anniversary at WFMU, uh, where um, the Antique Phonograph Music Program uh, was going strong and Centennial Songs was not yet around. And so um, I think that this conversation is interesting for a number of reasons. One, it kind of sheds some light on things that we talked about in the newer conversation. Uh, but we also get in a little bit more depth about how he got into the hobby, uh, tracing the origins of how these machines work, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, it, there's a lot of cool little tidbits that... Um, are in this chat that are not in the other one. And uh, for that and uh, that reason, I think it's uh, worth including in spite of some production uh, shortcomings, <laughs> as it were. Um, I think this conversation is particularly interesting because in a lot of ways, it's one of the first of this kind that I ever conducted. This was recorded for a previous iteration of this very show that you're listening to. And uh, that iteration of the show focused mostly on music and was more like my Mid-Valley Mutations program. Uh, and then occasionally would have other content as well. Uh, some of times interviews. Uh, and so Mac was one of the first. Uh, and, you know, um, as we get into the back end of the first year of this program in its current form, it's kind of nice to go back through the archives and see what I had done before, what I did wrong, <laughs> how the show has changed, how ideas evolve that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, Mac is a perfect example because uh, this conversation really sheds a lot of light on him as a person and uh, on his old program as well. And I think that uh, come Tuesday, this particular interview will be uh, most relevant to listeners. And uh, that'll probably be all I say about that because I do have to draw attention to one other factor and that is the recording quality. <laughs> recording phone calls has never been easy. <laughs> and uh, at that time, I didn't quite have it down. Uh, and to make matters worse, I had originally intended to record him uh, via Skype but our Skype was not working uh, very well that day, and so instead we connected via phone, and so I had to improvise a means of recording him <laughs> via phone at the last minute um, using uh, my cell phone and uh, whatever was lying around. So uh, this is not the best quality is what I'm getting at. I think uh, the call works, and I think or you can hear and understand everything, but... There is some hiss and hum in the in the background that uh, wouldn't be present uh, on the regular show. And um, ah, man, this technology in 2015 just wasn't uh, as good as as it is now. Man, it's just it's just a bummer. 
Uh, I think that this uh, conversation, though, is a lot of fun. Uh, you get to hear Mac uh, kind of in his normal element being you know, excited about this era, excited about this kind of music, excited about collecting, uh, and excited about, you know, presenting something that was slowly slipping away. You know, we uh, kind of dance around this and, and get into it a little bit, but, um, you know, part of the problem that was happening, especially 20 years ago, was that a lot of this stuff was in danger of being lost, you know? There weren't enough, you know high-profile mainstream collectors calling attention to the fact that some of these records were rotting away and just disappearing, being tossed into dumpsters and garbage heaps just because nobody knew what they were or what they could be or uh, anything about them. Fortunately, a lot of that has reversed, and great discoveries have been made of artists that were thought to have been lost. But we talk about it a little bit of all the things that could have been recorded, if could have been captured, this kind of alternate universe that exists where things that we dream about actually were made. These records are available. We can go and pick them up in stores. We can play them and listen to them and go like, oh, wow, that's what so-and-so sounded like. And, you know, that's just fantasy. We're never going to find one of these hidden gems, these lost Robert Johnson sessions or, you know, what have you. Uh, there's there's not going to be a Buddy Bolden record uh, just in the bin somewhere one day. Uh, but listening to Mac's show, we do get to experience this sense of what it might have been like. We can take the experience that he presents and, you know, transfer it, make some sense of it, immerse ourselves in the era and get a sense of what it was like to just even experience music this way and then maybe these dreams we have will be a little bit more vivid WTBC Radio in beautiful anywhere anywhere this conversation was conducted by phone on November 16th, 2015. And I believe that is him. Hello? Hello there. Yeah, how's it going? Everything's going good this morning. Excellent, excellent. Now, um, for people who don't already know, uh, Mac has been on uh, WFMU for uh, now over 20 years. And he's on Tuesdays? 20 years. Yeah, 20, 20 years in two weeks. 20 years in two weeks, not bad. Some DJs don't even make it past two weeks. Well, some, some DJs are two weeks old. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and you guys are on, uh, or sorry, you, you sometimes have guests. Uh, you're on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. on Eastern Time, uh, for people who are paying attention. Right, it's on uh, WFMU 91.1, that's uh, Terrestrial Airwaves here in the New York City area, but also streamed live at WFMU.org, and the archives can be found on the radio station with the uh, letters AP as the uh, designation of the show. So I've got, uh, oh, like about 15 years of shows um, archived online that people can hear yeah it goes back 
quite a ways, almost to the 90s in some cases. Like, I, I think there's at least yeah. one or two from that era. So it's a, pre- yes. it's yes. a pretty yeah. impressive. FMU was one of the pioneers of uh, streaming and archiving programs. Absolutely. No, the, uh, if, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, especially mine, because the music is really, there's no questions about the uh, it being public domain stuff. So mm-hmm. it was among the first shows to be uh, archived right. and, and um, podcast. Right, because there was no uh, worry about ASCAP or BMI or, or any of that stuff. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, when you tune into a regular show that plays a lot of records, you know, people are used to sometimes having a little bit of fiddling or you can kind of hear the needle being put down. But for the antique phonograph music program, uh, you actually get to hear machines being cranked up. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, is that, that was uh, initially a part of the design of the show, if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, I've been a record collector my whole life. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was in my 20s uh, and going beyond my um, classic rock roots <laughs> and interested in going further back, like, oh, well, what was the hits of the, uh, you know, what was popular music in the 60s? What was popular in the 50s? What was popular in the 40s? Right. And, and interested in going further and further back. And these, we're talking the days where uh, the early days of CDs and uh, reissue LPs. So the further back I went, I realized there was not there were less and less reissues of material. Then when you got to the 30s and the 20s and the 10s mm-hmm. and the off of the last century, very little bit had been reissued. So I started to think, well, how did people listen to music, and uh, what were they listening to? And I was always out uh, yard sales and garage sales and uh, antique shops and flea markets looking for records. So I started to pick up 78s. Mm. And I would always see these machines with the big horn on top. And it's like, wow. And I'd always seen them as I was growing up in cartoons and magazines. And in a certain sense, there's quintessential antique. I thought, well, what would it be like to listen to music through them? And um, I realized there was a cylinder machine also, which went even further back. Like, what was that like to listen to? So I acquired my first Victrola at a yard sale and uh, started listening to it and thought, wow, this is a completely different experience from um, what I know as listening to music. Right. It's um, very thin sounding. Uh, these machines require you to crank them up. Uh, and the machine I got was barely working. I had to go to the library <laughs> to try to find information about uh, how to use it because, again, this is the pre uh the days before everyone had the internet in their home. Right. Uh, and I, I found uh, some other, another collector in my area who kind of mentored me about how to get it in shape and, uh, you know, gave me some records and started finding the right books to read and realizing, wow, there's this whole world of hidden music that is really inaccessible to everybody. It's taken me a lot of work to, uh, to uh, access it. And uh, it's a very active thing you have to be doing as far as getting the needles and finding the records and finding out who they are and how to and maintaining the machine. Right. And so I thought as I started to do it and share it with friends, they expressed the same thing. Like, wow, I never imagined what this sounded like. It's such a um, evocative sound of the era. Mm-hmm. such a uh, interesting way to hear music. I just can't imagine that people used to listen to music that way. And I thought, that's exactly right. This is the way 
people used to listen to music. So I thought people really liked that sound, even though it's what I call lo-fi. <laughs> uh, they really liked the sound of it. So I thought, well, this would be a good idea to share this with people, to let people hear these records, to let people hear who the artists were, what were the musical styles of this period on the machines, and uh, really just let it be. Don't use any EQ. Don't try to do any processing. Don't do any filtering. And just let people hear and have an experience of listening to music the way they did 100-plus years ago. Right. And so that's what I think we need to do. Yeah, and, and there's definitely, you know, other people who have tried to kind of, like, do MP3 versions of antique records or as you mentioned, to try to like get rid of some of the background noise or whatnot. But what I think is charming about your show is that you get to hear it's the record itself. It's the story of that particular 78 and who owned it before and how often it was played before and how worn the grooves are. And I mean, the, the record outside of the artist has a story to tell. Yeah, um, as far as I know, I'm the only one in the world who does a show like this. Yeah. It's... Again, uh, when, I, when I started off, it was, uh, you know, when I contacted the radio station, WFMU, was, it's a fairly hard radio station to get a show on. And I'd been <laughs> volunteering with them, and I'd been listening to them for, for years because they had opened up my, my ears to so many kinds of music. Right. And it's a fairly lengthy audition process and um, interning process. When I contacted them... Um, I contacted the station manager in, you know, 90, uh, 95. I said, I got this idea for a show, and I explained it to him. He likes to say it was the first show ever that on the pitch on the phone, on the phone he was like, yes, I want to do this show. <laughs> He's like, this is like unlike anything I'd ever, uh, unlike any pitch I'd ever have, unlike any show that we've ever had, unlike any idea that's ever been presenting, presented, I want to, like, get this going immediately. So, uh, right, yeah, and it seems, seems to... Um, resonate with people that whole idea of yes the original artifact being presented mm -hmm. well and it's given you an opportunity to you know present an entire uh, era of uh, artists and performers and uh, record labels that just do not exist anymore yeah well you know again when i when i started that was my idea that this stuff was so inaccessible let me do a program where i can share this and I can uh, have other collectors on to share their records, too, because traditionally collecting these machines and records was a fairly solitary pursuit. You know, you'd collect right. this stuff, it'd be in your basement, maybe you'd have some friends over occasionally, but, uh, uh, you know, mostly the stuff was all hidden away. Uh, I want to get this stuff out there more. I want to have these guys come out and play their records and let people hear them, Um so, yeah. Yeah, totally. Because, you know, as you mentioned on the show from time to time, you know, there are artists, for example, like Billy Murray, who in their day were extremely well known. And now uh, trying to find anyone who knows them outside of aficionados is, is very rare. Well, you know, if, if, if we make a big jump from 95 to 2015, uh, He's a really popular artist again. <laughs> I, mean, I meet a lot of people who know him, not only through my show, because so much of this music is out there now on the Internet. Mm. Uh, besides, besides myself, who's added to the, uh, the bulk of it, uh, there's 
sites like the National Jukebox, right. uh, which is bought by the Library of Congress. There's the University of Santa Barbara, who has a huge uh, tens of thousands of cylinders they've made available. There are almost every song is put out by collectors just by putting a, a microphone or a video camera on their Victrola, <laughs> putting it on YouTube. So, so much is out there now. So many more reissues have been done also. So, uh, and I get people of all ages who come to me and they're like, oh, I love Billy Murray. You know, teenagers. Like, oh, Billy Murray's got <laughs> a great voice. So, in a way, he's more popular. I don't know if he's more popular than he's ever been, but uh, he's definitely more popular than he was 20 years ago. Right, right, right. I, I imagine at one of your next shows, there's going to be people wearing Billy Murray t-shirts and you know things like that. <laughs> Billy Murray fan club. There you go. There you go. It could start up again. Why not? Maybe. Uh, you can do that. I got enough to do. <laughs> right. Actually, that's a good segue because you are involved in quite a few things, uh, not to mention the Antique Phonograph Enthusiasts page on, on Facebook, but you do these live shows. You, you just had your 20th anniversary party, which was huge. Uh, where do you find the time to find records? <laughs> oh, I really... Now I have to find the time to keep the records away from me. <laughs> they are, you know, I, I uh, get out of my car and there's a pile of records, uh, tr uh, you know, trying to get into my car. I'm like, get away. I'll be walking down the street. Right. I'll turn a corner and there'll be some records there, like saying, we want to come home with you. And I'm like, no. And I'm running away from them. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll pick up the phone. It'll be a 78 saying, uh, you know, stalking me. And I hang up and, you know, try to block them. Right. But, but in all, all, all seriousness now, um, People know the show from literally around the world and around the country, and I get all sorts of messages saying, we're cleaning out my grandmother's attic, and we have 10,078 that she collected, right. and we would like to give them to you. I'm like, ah, I've got too many already. I'm really trying to get rid of records. Mm -hmm. um, keep my, my, my uh, collection distilled down. I'm very discerning about picking more stuff in. But, you know, there, uh, I go to a, a regular show, uh, every six months here in New Jersey, in Wayne, called the um, Mechanical Music Extravaganza. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, yeah, which takes place, which is machines, records, uh, parts, books, other dealers, um, all sorts of collectibles referring uh, that go along with the hobby. So I pick up little things here and there that I really want. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, most, most of the time, people contact me I'll vet them a little bit, find out what they have, and very often it's later stuff, like a 40s, 78s, and big band stuff, which I really... Yeah, I have some of those, because I have um, the machines that'll play the later records also. Mm. But, uh, you know, most, for the most part, you know, you mentioned my Antique Photograph Enthusiast page. That is just another way of sharing information and sharing the knowledge and just um, helping newbies in the hobby, which there are more and more these days of people wanting to collect the machines. Right. And there's a lot of very advanced collectors who've been doing it longer than I have on there. <laughs> so it's just a way to, to let people, each other, see the machines. A lot of times they'll say to them, you know what? Join this page, post your information. Maybe someone will take them. Maybe not. But uh, I can't be responsible for uh, saving every 78 that's out there. Right, right, because inevitably it's just going to be a stack of, you know, Bing Crosby records or, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of Red Label Columbia, Frank Sinatra's, and yeah. <laughs> Stuff that's been easily reissued time and time again. Right, and I, I like playing them. You know, I have like a suitcase um, 
portable player from the 40s, and I like playing Frank Sinatra on something like that, and I have some Frank Sinatra records, but again, I have a, a big LP collection, 45 collection, and other kinds of records, and you know, you have to be careful a lot not let this stuff overrun your life. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, and, and, and you mentioned a couple times that you started outside of the antique era in terms of your interest. There was a show you did... Oh gosh, maybe a few months back, where you did three hours of non-antique records, uh, and I think I even heard some prog rock in there. Oh yeah, I was a, I'm a huge prog rock fan. Absolutely. Ah, yeah. I grew up on uh, some of that stuff, and uh, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I have a big LP collection as well of all sorts of stuff. Right, and so that was you know, WFMU is a freeform station. There are all sorts of shows on there. And um, I had an opportunity to do a fill-in show for somebody. That was great. It gave me a chance to play everything else except 78. <laughs> Nothing on 78. Right. This is all of your CDs, all of your tapes, all of your whatever. <laughs> it was mostly uh, MP3s and LPs. I got rid of my CDs um, uh, a few years ago. I don't want any CDs. Yeah, they, they, they didn't age very well, unfortunately. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll never get rid of my, obviously, 78 cylinders and LPs, but I never really connected with the CDs. Uh, you know, I would get them, I would digitize them at a pretty high bit rate, mm-hmm. and then I would never look at them again. <laughs> right. They sort of sit there, and it's not like an LP. If they want to hear the song, I take out the LP, put it on the turntable, maybe look at the, uh, the cover, put it back on the shelf. And, mm. You know, it's a very active thing. I like... I like that active involvement in the music. Right. The CD, it's like, yeah, I open up my computer, put it in, and I would never have to look at it again. So I'll just play it from the uh, MP3. And it's way less impressive to have the uh, biggest MP3 collection around, you know. It'd be more interesting to have the records. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm even very discerning about MP3 collections. People are, oh, I've got 500,000 songs. Let me just make you a copy. You know, you can put it on your hard drive. I'm like, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I noticed that there's definitely this kind of you know shift that's happened within the lifetime of your show of um, from the radio aspect because uh, you know when you started out, I'm sure that the archive of, of you know, capturing all this stuff wasn't necessarily part of the original deal. Uh, I imagine it was just about doing the live radio show. Yeah, no, it didn't exist when I first started doing the show. Right. It was uh, it would go out on the air. And that was it. It was gone. Right. So that has changed uh, dramatically, uh, not just, you know, uh, within the span of your show, but even in the last few years, these kinds of radio program archives have, uh, you know, hit the web in a very big way. Uh, Do you feel like that has changed the way you approach your show, knowing that it's going to live on as long as there's electricity? Not really. I think that the basic uh, precept of the show still remains the same, letting people hear these machines and records. Mm. Um, so that's what I continue to do. Um, I, I wondered a few years ago if my show was obsolete because of so much material that was out there. Mm. Um, I, as I described before, all these different sources now, uh, if I find a, a 78 that I'd never heard before, um, Chances are I can go plug it in, plug the name in on my browser and find a copy to hear somewhere on YouTube or some individual collector's site. Oh, okay. So it's all out there now. And so I wondered, I was like, well, maybe my, maybe, uh, 
you know, my original idea of like letting people hear this stuff because it's very inaccessible, it was done because it's all accessible now. And so I started to ask people, uh, not only at the radio station, but listeners and uh, friends about it and to get their point of view. And what they told me was, you know what? I go to the Library of Congress website and it's like I'm drowning. There's, I don't know what to, I don't know what to choose. I don't know what to listen to. There, yeah, there's all this stuff out there. There's millions of songs, but I don't know where to start. Right. But your program, it's a nice one-hour uh, curated show with information that I can listen to at my leisure. It's it's an hour long. It's, it's long enough, and it's not too long. It gives you information. You tie it into the history. You tie in bring it to the present, and it's really great to have that presentation. Um, so I was like, okay, so I guess people still appreciate radio shows. Right. Uh, so I was like, all right, I guess I'll keep on doing things. Yeah, and, and you have a fairly interactive uh, fan base as well. WFMU has those playlists where people are leaving comments as the show is live, and, and I imagine people come out to your events too who are listeners at home. Yeah, uh, you know, I do remote broadcasts from different locations where um, we have an internet connection that sends the signal to our board and it goes out live. And yeah, um, as I was, uh, again, it all comes back to my, the original idea was um, letting people hear the machine. I was like, okay, I got to do it on the radio. But I would always take the opportunity when friends would come over to have these little listening sessions. So it's... Um, it's a little different when you're in the room with one of these machines and hearing them play. So, so I was like, yeah, I like, I like when people get to see the machines also because there's a very visual aspect to it. It's not just putting a record on a, on a you know, Technique 1200 turntable <laughs> right. and that's what it is. It's, uh, the machines are beautiful, so people love to see them and uh, as part of it. So, and there's yeah, a physical presence, too. Those, I mean, those machines, when you're standing in front of the horn, like... That song is hitting you, like it's yes. it's it's not just you know this kind of passive thing coming from your phone or whatever. Right, right. There's a very, you know, the whole thing was done without electricity. These songs were recorded without electricity. They were played back without electricity. It's all acoustical, physical energy that was part of the process. So you absolutely feel that when you're in a room with them and they're being played. And then there's the presence of these machines, which are, you know, you look at this horn machine, uh, people are like, wow, this is unbelievable. <laughs> right. You know, I can't believe you, know, you, you get more reaction from that than people in their iPhones. <laughs> yeah, because you know, everybody has an iPhone, but man, look at that horn. Yeah, like, oh my God, even the Victrola, like, it's beautiful. Look at the way this wood is and everything. And oh my God, you got to crank it up. I showed them the motor, like, oh my God, how does that work? <laughs> it's all greasy and you oily and like yeah well it's a machine it's got to be all lubricated to work properly so i feel like it, um that's half of it of getting out there with people um is them seeing everything and i do educational presentations also mm -hmm. i just did something last i just did something last week at, uh, at new york university um for awesome. technology students uh you know these are the kids that are working with the latest digital technologies and uh, recording techniques. And so they asked me to come in to talk about, well, what were the earliest recording technologies? 
And what were the earliest uh, ways that uh, records were made? What were the earliest machines like? What did it sound like? Uh, what was the industry like? So I did a presentation with that. And I've done them for college students. I've done them for grammar school kids. <laughs> uh, so all sorts of levels of um, making it uh, a little more educationally geared than just playing music. Yeah. And you had mentioned before that you do a lot of research, uh, but it sounds like, at least with these kind of presentations and whatnot, that uh, it probably goes beyond just the average person of, you know, Googling the name of the artist and making sure they get the label right. Um, what do you mean? Uh, well, I mean, I imagine that you're looking into the uh, artists, finding out how these things were recorded, you know, as you mentioned, the technology, how these machines work, you know. It's not something that you oh, can just... Sure you know, pick up a, a, a book uh, or that you found online and, and go to town. There's probably more to it. Yeah, it takes a long time to get comfortable with um, using these machines. And, you know, it took me, when I was first doing the show, it was sort of any record I could find I would play. But after time, I was like, you know, I want to be a little more discerning. But yet, on the other hand, I feel like I want to represent all the music from the era. It's not just about oh, here's all the good records that I like <laughs> from the era. I'll play crappy ballads. I'll play opera. Um, you know, this sort of uh, sentimental, romantic salon music. Um, you know, just a sort of artistic whistlers, all sorts of stuff, because I want to say this is a range of music that was available. And there was um, very ethnic, uh, what we consider offensive stuff today. There's a whole oh, yeah. genre of songs called like nigger songs or coon songs where, mm -hmm. you know, titles look nearly like um, if the man in the moon were a coon or, <laughs> oh, wow. or, 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 or nigger loves his possum. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, you know, there's uh, songs about, you know, Jews and, if, you know, if when Mose with his nose leads the orchestra <laughs> or, um, wow. you know, Italian ones like, you know, called Hey Walk. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'll play that stuff. Right, because it's a part I'll of the era. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll say that. Look, I'm, I'm not, you know, we're considering this stuff highly offensive today, especially more, as more time goes on. Mm -hmm. Everything's offensive. <laughs> but I'll put it on and say, hey, listen, this is what was out there. I'm not going to um, not play it because we're going to consider it offensive. Yeah, okay, let's consider it offensive. But let's also just say that this was stuff that was available during that time. And I hope that you can understand that's what I'm doing. I'm not, you know, saying, you know, that niggers love their possum. I'm saying right. it's a record that's available. And I've had more messages of people saying, you know what, thank you for not um, uh, steering away from that and letting us hear what that's like. I, like you say, I never knew that stuff existed. And it's, it's really offensive and it's so strange that this is what people would listen to and it was really interesting to hear what that was like. And thank you for not just not playing it because you're afraid. Uh, I've never had anyone say, how dare you play that material? Right. You know, you're, you're doing a disservice to the uh, you know, world. I've had more people saying, you know, you're doing a service to the world mm -hmm. by letting uh, people hear it sometimes and presenting it in the proper context. Right, because it would be very easy to whitewash the program and really only focus on stuff that you thought would listeners could connect with or would relate to a modern audience. But, I mean, I find the stuff that, you know, you would never hear in these days much more interesting. You know, you mentioned the artistic whistling records. Those are right. amazing. Right. Yeah, you know, again, it's, it's um, 
I approach the show with equal parts of entertainment and education. So I call it edutainment. <laughs> and I, I don't like to overdo it either. I don't like to, uh, I put more emphasis on the music. I try to make, make sure the shows are mostly about music. Right. And I keep the information on what I call a second or third grade level. I don't ever want to be so pedantic where I'm giving so much information that it gets boring. It's like, here's a little information about the record. Here's some information about, you know, recording for a few minutes. And now, now here's another record. Here it is. Here's the label. Here's who it is. Oh, so yeah. give, give some information, but keep it mostly about the music and the artists of all um, walks of, uh, you know, what was available. And, you know, like I said, there's some personally some really boring stuff. I mean, <laughs> I currently, you know, of, of new music today, I, I hate love songs. They're mm. the most boring, overdone concept in music. Uh, Fairly that's trite. Still being done. And even back then, it was even almost worse. Like, I love you, my <laughs> darling. You are my true one. It's less oh, coded. Yeah, it's, just, it's just the same thing. You know, it's like this is this format which is so boring is just still being done today and so i was like i'll play those like okay you know what it was out there here's some of that um you know on the other hand you have the birth of jazz during that period right and um suddenly you know jazz becomes a a phenomenon in 1917 and it's exploding Mm -hmm. you know the blues in 1919 with uh mamie smith and crazy blues and you know wc handy starting to, to um put out recordings and the birth can... of country music when they didn't know what they didn't really know what it was they thought it was never a sell they're like none of these rubes are going to buy records uh, why should we put any of that uh, this uh, rural music out there and they start to realize oh people are interested in it um, it was always about moving products oh totally make no mistake it was never about uh, any kind of artistic integrity it's like we're going to serve the people by putting out jazz they're like oh people are going to buy these records great <laughs> let's crank them so, out <laughs> yeah so. Uh, Really, uh, there's it's it's a wide range of stuff happening during that time, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I like to try to uh, represent a, a, as much of it as possible. And and on your show in particular, you get to hear these kind of in between songs too, where it's like a little bit of something before leading into country or leading into blues or leading into jazz, which I always find that stuff fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, you can hear the evolution of American music. Uh, you can trace it back. You can trace back rock and roll to this era. You know, everything's done incrementally in steps. Mm-hmm. You know, you have John Philip Sousa doing marching band music in 1901. And then you have uh, bands, you know, wanting to pep it up a little bit, make it a little more dancey with some one steps by the time you get to, you know, 1910. They're like, oh, let's do some ragtime <laughs> with the marching bag. And, and they start to do that. They start to improvise a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it gets a little wilder. And then you have, you know, next thing is New Orleans Dixieland jazz, which those bands are uh, developing into. So it's all these little incremental steps. Totally. Now, I've just got a few more questions here, and, and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. I uh, don't want to keep you too long. Um, sure. Uh, but uh, there was one show in particular, oh gosh, I think it was about a year or so ago, where you were playing a bunch of new old stock that you had located. And I just right, right. I love this story, and I was wondering if you could do a kind of a bridged version of of that. Uh. Well, I'm always, uh, like I said, I, in a certain way, I'm not 
trying to find records. They're always finding me. <laughs> so, um, I was picking up my son from camp, uh, upstate uh. New York, and uh, driving back. I saw an antique store, and I'm like, oh, we're going to stop in here. He's like, no, Dad, I don't want to stop in there. I want to just get home. Like, Typical we're stopping kid. in. I want to just like, walk around. So we go in there. It's a you know, big box of 78s. I'm like, oh, let me look through these. I start to look at them, and I'm like, you know, some, some cool titles here, but the the the, um, the sleeves are are so clean on these. The sleeves are like not tattered. Uh, you know, they would get torn from people using them. And I start to look at the uh, the shellac. Mm. It's, oh, it's so shiny, this shellac. Right. And um, and there's another telltale sign. You know, when you put a record on and you're trying to get the center hole on the spindle, mm. you know, you're sort of mo- moving it around a little bit until you get it down on there. Right. Well, whenever you do that on a 78, there'll be little marks where mm. that happens, where people are pushing down. There's none of these marks. And then it's so shiny. I'm looking at it, I'm like, this is new old stock. This, these records have never been played. <laughs> and I went to, and I asked the woman there, I said, uh, where did this come from? She's like, oh, I, I cleaned out a house, you know, a month or so ago, and they were, just, you know, in boxes in the basement. I was like, do you realize, like, you know, these are no old stocks? She's like, what does that mean? <laughs> well, they're, you know, they're, they're from the, the uh, teens and 20s. They've never been played. She's like, oh, I, I really don't know anything about them. Whatever. They're a dollar each. I'm like, okay, wow. fine. So it's really great to uh, have that opportunity to play these records because uh, they, they will get worn, um, but they do actually, on the other hand, last very well when you use proper needles and the proper machines. But it was really great to hear stuff that had never been played on a reconditioned machine. So really, just what it would be like to bring home a new record and put it on your Victrola. Yeah, and, and that show that where you were showcasing some of those records, you were very reverent of these, of these uh, uh, pieces of vinyl, or, or shellac, I should say, because uh, they, they were so pristine. It, that show really uh, spoke to me and, and stuck out, because it, it not only highlighted some of the music of that era, but uh, how much you enjoy it. Oh, I, I don't, that has never happened to me, and I recognize that, that that's pretty rare that that can happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. <laughs> well, I'm glad that it got captured uh, for the program. Yeah. yeah. I, I, that was a really... Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> so uh, another thing that I've kind of picked up on as I've uh, been listening to the show is that there's definitely a slight experimental angle to the way that you present these records because, you know, like you said, no one else is bringing in crank-up machines no one else is, you know, kind of presenting these uh, in the way that they were uh, originally. And and you've even done some work, uh, I know, with Vicky for the radio broadcast and a few other things mm-hmm. that kind of edges into this experimental area. Uh, is that something that was, again, intentional or just an accident? Um, I think that uh, these are sort of like toys, and uh, I'm always open to what can be done with them. Uh, layering sometimes. Uh, I have a dream of having a hundred gramophones together in one room <laughs> and everyone everyone playing a, a laughing record simultaneously. Wow. That will, I, I will realize at one point, uh, getting like a hundred collectors together, and each one of them having a laughing record and everyone playing them at the same time. That would um, be amazing. I like the idea of the cacophony of multiple machines. I've done some... Um, 
stuff where I run them through effects off the point to one of the shows where I've really done some super experimental stuff. Uh, and, uh, yeah, why not? Why not play with, uh, play with them? Well, because you imagine that the people who had these in their homes, uh, even then, were probably, you know, like, touching the records, listening to them slow down and speed up, or, or adjusting the cranks so that they, you know, play back at different speeds, you know. It, it wasn't always just the tune as is. Right. Well, um, Big Spiderbeck, uh, one of the great uh, jazz coronetists of mm-hmm. the jazz age, talked about how he would put on the original Dixieland jazz band records and slow them way down on the Victrola <laughs> so he can dissect each horn part and learn each horn part. Oh. Um, and that's what he did to uh, learn about jazz. He was in Ohio, and here's this New York jazz coming at him. And, you know, that's, it's, it's another interesting aspect of this. It's, it's not easy for us to imagine someone hearing recorded sound for the first time, right. which was happening 100, 110 years ago, mm-hmm. where, you know, someone who's on a, can- a farm in Kansas, they, or they, they feel like, you know, I've been reading about these talking machines. Here's our Sears catalog. I got $10 we saved. Let's <laughs> order one. Right. And then, you know, eight weeks later, the thing arrives. They're uncreating it. The whole family's sitting around like, what is this? And they, they get it set up, they put on a record, and there's stories of people like literally breaking down and crying <laughs> because they're hearing this and like, oh my, it's, it's such a revelation to finally hear that. And so not only hearing recorded sound for the first time, you know, part of the pitch from the Victor Talking Machine Company was, you know, now the planes within Texas can hear the latest Broadway hits. <laughs> yeah, it was unimaginable. Right. You know, we sort of can't imagine. We have access to every kind of music these days from every part of the world. I mean, we can hear pygmies from uh, Papua New Guinea chanting. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, it's something that was not, not uh, you know, able to be done 100 years ago. So, uh, except if you got the records. Mm-hmm. And remember, it's pre-radio, obviously pre-TV and pre-everything. That was it. Unless you had a band or a decent musician in your family, you weren't hearing music. Right. I did an interview with my grandmother uh, not too long ago, and she has this very vivid memory of her father uh, getting a record player and playing waltzes for her for the mm-hmm. first time. And you know, she, she got this wonderful look in her eye where I could tell she wasn't fully describing the experience the way she remembered it because it was such a vivid thing for her and to me i'm kind of like yeah we grew up with records i heard the beatles a million times when i was a kid you know so i i I have trouble connecting to that experience but i like to try to imagine it and 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 see what it see what it might have been like yeah yeah me too Mm -hmm. there's an excellent book that i read not too long ago perfecting sound forever by greg milner i'm not sure that's the one that traces the uh the history of sound recording. It does, yeah, an oral history, uh, and he starts with Edison and, and and moves forward. And those first couple of chapters are really good because you you really get this sense of how uh, non technological music was prior to being able to capture it. And these days, you know, everything requires electricity and microphones and mixers and this, that, and the other. And I just I love the right. idea of being in a room 
with just acoustic instruments and that's the sound you hear. <laughs> right. And, and one thing I've uh, figured out was, you know, Edison came up with this machine to record sound in 1877. Mm-hmm. The materials and technology he was using, could have, it could have been done 2,000 years before. It literally could have been done with right. the Egyptians, right. with making a wood mandrel and using beeswax. Mm-hmm. If someone had put it together, uh, but it was at that moment, 1877, that he did it. Mm-hmm. And just, it's, it's an interesting idea. Of, imagine if someone did it 100 or 1,000 years earlier, where the recording technology would be, or I mean, maybe it couldn't have changed that much. Maybe it would have remained the same for 1,000 years. But uh, <laughs> Leveled off at some if point. It happened, if, if, it, uh, if it happened and we had... Uh, you know, the voices of every president and, oh, wow. uh, you know, every, uh, you know, Bach, you know, Bach and Beethoven re- actual recordings and stuff like that. Yeah, it, or stage productions, you know, we could hear old these old, uh, you know, playwrights, you know, delivering these, you know, classic speeches the way they originally intended them. <laughs> we could have heard Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I, I might listen to that one later. Well, I'm just saying, it's an interesting where time, uh, the time of the invention corresponds with the inventor. Totally, uh, totally. how it comes together mm-hmm. in, that, in, in that moment. Now, there's one thing that you've done on a few of your shows, and I think these are mostly for live gigs where you're in front of an audience, and this cracks me up every single time where uh, you will break a record uh, in front of people, and sometimes people are shocked, and other times people are, eh. and uh, I, is that just because there's just so many of them that you can afford to break a few, or? It, it makes my collection more valuable, every one I break. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. No, it's not really that. It's just that, you know, sometimes they, they break all the time. I mean, I'll be taking stuff off my shelf, pulling things out, and I'll drop it, it breaks, like, oh, well, another one gone. Right. Uh, I'll be I'll be going through um, you know boxes of records and look they're all cracked in here. I mean they're they're they they break. You look at them the wrong way, they break sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not... just they're 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 not a, a permanent format. Even though they've lasted so long, they're very fragile. Mm-hmm. I try to be careful with them, but they break. And whenever I break them, it's usually something that's really it, it might be cracked already, so it's already gone, or it's something so common that who cares if you know this is going to break. So I'm never doing it with any with any Robert Johnson records or anything like that. <laughs> but uh, you know, it has a good effect. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it also kind of speaks to the uh, ephemeral nature of music because you know we love to collect things and hear things captured on tape or vinyl or whatever. Uh, but in the end, the experience of hearing something slips away very quickly, uh, and so yeah. that physical moment of of seeing something break kind of helps you know, connect you to that, oh, yeah, these things could disappear at any moment. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is a total separate subject, but another big interest of mine. I'm going to send you a link to it, but uh, it's called the Internet Museum of uh, Cardboard Oddity and um, Cardboard Records. I've seen this site. It's amazing. The uh, the postage stamp records and 
Oh. Yeah, that's my that's all my stuff. Oh, it is really, really uh, a treasure and, and, and worth checking out if any of the listeners have, have not already visited. I mean, and, and the focus on that is exactly what you're talking about. These records were not meant to be permanent. Mm-hmm. They were all ephemeral. They were meant to be used for certain things or at a certain time and then literally meant to be thrown away. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a record about the new 1963 Chevrolet it's out now. It's fantastic. Well, they didn't want you to listen to that in 1964. <laughs> you know, they wanted to get down to the dealer and buy the 63. Right. Or, you know, hey, here's, the, here's this new uh, high-fat ice cream. It's the greatest ice cream of 1971. You should taste this ice cream. Well, it was already, they're out of business by 72, so it didn't matter anymore. <laughs> right. Or, you know, vote, vote for Nixon in 68. Everything's going to be great. Well, he lost. So, you know, <laughs> let's get on to 72. Uh so uh, it, it, they're all these records were not meant to be permanent. They were mm-hmm. meant to be temporary, listened to and thrown away. You know, back of a cereal box. Right. Listen to it. They were sort of leaders, and they would be bringing you to something else to buy something or go somewhere, to do something, and that's what they were meant for. They're a conduit to something. Yeah, yeah. Now they're very uh, disposable, at least in terms of the way they're marketed to us, but. Uh, the the irony, of course, is that people like us have uh, had a little bit of a fondness for them, and you know we don't want them to go away just yet. No, no. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm just about ready to close out, but I definitely wanted to thank you. Uh, I remember when I first discovered your program, I put it on, and uh, you know some records sounded a lot like noise. I had trouble understanding what the vocalists were saying. Uh, and then there was one program that you did where you said, I can usually hear through the dirt. And uh, mm-hmm. lo and behold, after all these years, uh, when I listen to a new episode, I'm singing along. I feel like, oh, yeah, I can listen through those pops and skips. You know, like it, it you have to train yourself to do it. But when you do, you open yourself up to this whole world of music that's just incredible. And, and I really wanted to thank you for that. Oh, well, you're welcome. You absolutely have to implement your own filter mm-hmm. and turn it on. And there's a, there's a, it's, it's an active listening experience. You have to concentrate and listen through. WTBC. And that's going to do it for us this week. My conversation with phonograph DJ Mac from 2015. There's some good tidbits in there, and actually, you can still listen to a lot of the old programs that he did uh, under the name the Antique Phonograph Music Program, uh, thanks to the WFMU archives. Uh, These, I mean, we kind of talked about it a tiny bit in the conversation, but these are extensive, very cool archives with playlists and other interactive elements that capture the work of WFMU, which is impressive. There's so much cool stuff to listen to and download. And that station has, you know, not just Max show, but uh, a ton of artists have uh, found a home there where they get to create and make radio that uh, is just unlike anything you've heard anywhere else. If I haven't talked it up enough, check out WFMU. Maybe you've heard of them. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but yeah. Um, their archives are great, and you can listen to old episodes of Max's show, which is even cooler, because uh, his show was something special. And um, 
I mean, nobody else really did a show like that before him, and I think people who do one now entirely got it from him. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's that's no that's no small thing. I've left a few of the production elements of how this show was originally uh, aired um, uh, in the program itself, but I'll be honest, uh, you know, the show was different in those days, uh, and it was kind of capturing this period after we had left Portland and before I had really settled into Salem uh, and you know me trying to figure out what my next move was and you know WTBC was this notion at the time that you know it was like okay well you know everybody always wants to be cool so like let's talk to these people who like have kind of figured it out like how did they get to the point where like they don't even think about being cool anymore um because like i think that's everybody's like secret desire that we're all these like nerdy weirdos <laughs> who have no business trying to make friends or interact with people and uh we just kind of go like hey uh, um, I, I like uh weird stuff too um but you know in, uh, in reality um you know we're all just you know, wanting to be cool. We're not really cool. <laughs> um, so that was the, the idea behind the show in those days. And then, um, you know, things happen. New ideas, new opportunities. The world turned. Uh, and so, you know, I sat on the name. I left it there while I moved on to other projects. But I always liked the concept. I always liked the idea. And uh, when the opportunity for this new program rolled around where I could talk to people I liked and get a chance to interview them again, this old idea for a name kind of bounced back. So um, this was one of the shows that I feel like got lost in the shuffle because unfortunately once I moved on to my new program, the WTBC stuff kind of languished and then got lost and then it was back, but then it was not. And so I'm just happy that this interview is out again and uh, people can hear Max's stories because uh, he's pretty entertaining once he gets started. <laughs> and uh, I'm a big fan, uh, if you cannot tell. I should probably wrap things up and let things move on because we got other stuff to do. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no show. Be seeing you. WTPC Anywhere, anywhere, from our house to yours. I, I want to talk about my DJing a little bit, too. Absolutely. Uh, with the stuff. Um, you know, uh, about five or seven years ago, someone contacted me and said, we're having a party. We want you to bring the gramophones and, you know, play them for our party. I was like, well, it's not going to be very loud. I have to, like, sort of amplify them with microphones or something. They're like, whatever, you know, bring them out. I'm like, well... You know, it's going to be a lot of work. Like, oh, we'll pay you. Like, oh, you're going to pay me to do that. Nice. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so I did it. I was like, okay, that was that was interesting. But then about a year later, someone was like, oh, you know, we're having a party, and we'd love to have our the gramophones at the party. I'm like, oh, really? You too, huh? Okay. And then a friend said to me, you know, that's a whole thing you haven't been doing about DJing with these machines. As I was still a non-believer. I was like, you think so? I was like, I don't know. They're, they're so noisy. It's just like, it, you really, it takes a certain amount of things. She's like, you're absolutely wrong. She's like, it's charming. People love it from your radio show. They would love to see them more out there. I was like, all right. Uh, she's like, get some cards made and just start to put it out there. So I did. 
And um, slowly, it's been building to where I'm doing a lot of events now where I come out with the machines at... Um, I do a lot of weddings, or I'm doing the cocktail hour, or I'm playing the wedding march for their ceremony on the gramophone. Right. I'm doing these jazz age parties, playing music. I'm doing uh, house parties, all these uh, uh, different events, uh, corporate things for people. There's been a whole rise in interest along with my show uh, in the jazz age. Of uh, there's been you know, TV shows and movies in the last few years, and just I don't know. The general interest has been rising and rising. So now I have road cases. I've literally been around the world with these things, fly <laughs> with them, and um, I'm traveling all around. I'm doing lots of events, and more and more people are, you know, saying the same thing. I, I still have doubts sometimes. I'm in a large room, and it's really loud, and you can barely hear them. But you know, I'm trying to strike this balance because I'm putting a microphone in the horn, and as well as putting out sound, they're capturing sound. So. It's sort of a challenge to keep them from feeding back. And oh, people are like, right. this is fantastic. It's so evocative. It's so beautiful what you're doing. And I'm like, great. And so people continue to love it. I'm like, and I said to people, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a thin sound and it's not what you're used to. And, but now I embrace that whole idea. They're like, yeah, that's exactly what we love about it. It's mm. that it's not like what we're used to hearing. It's totally evocative. It's charming. It's what it is. And don't be apologetic about it. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> well, it seems like that lo-fi movement of the 80s and 90s actually is starting to pay off as people hear things that are genuinely lo-fi uh, just because of the way they were re originally manufactured. Yeah, I, I think part of it is people are hearing it with their eyes. They mm. see these horned machines, and they're so entranced by them. And I'm always dressed in a period suit, so I'm looking the part. <laughs> so it's a visual thing also. And it's not like a traditional DJ where if you enter a room and you're in the back, you see, you can, you'll see me before you hear it right. because it doesn't travel so far. <laughs> so you have to come to it. The closer you get, the louder it is. And it doesn't get very loud, but you have to come to it and come to the machines and mm -hmm. come to the sounds and have this experience of seeing them. And I watch people from across the room. They come like zombies. <laughs> like started walking over, like, oh my God, are these real? Right. How, well, how do they work? What I don't understand. <laughs> They're absolutely charmed by them. Right. Well, and then this so, also. I, oh, I'm sorry. I just, I'm grateful that uh, now what has been. I mean, all my radio show and the machines are mine, and I put a lot of money into acquiring a collection and buying the machines and maintaining them. Well, now it's kind of turned around. Now I'm making some money, and I can use it as a tax write-off, which is every record collector's dream. That's awesome. Congratulations on yeah. that. <laughs> oh, thank you. And, and what I say to people is it's something that I never expected to happen, but mm -hmm. at the same time, it's something I've been working towards my whole life. Right, right. Well, you know, and, and unlike if you had gotten into this hobby in the 80s, uh, now you have this whole network of people that you can meet up with and talk to, uh, partially because of your program. Yeah, and like I said, the uh, Facebook page is just an open source of information for people, and it really comes down to what my original idea was, mm -hmm. just to share this stuff, just to share the music, share the machines, get people to see them and hear them because I thought they would really enjoy it. And it just keeps, that's the original concept, and it just keeps expanding. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 fantastic. And if you're not already listening on Tuesdays at uh, eight Eastern time, uh, check out the archives and check out the podcast. Uh, it comes out shortly after the live program, and you can listen to it anywhere and anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, if anybody wanted to get in touch or needed any more information about uh, your show or, or what you do, or I mean, there's the excellent New York Times profile, which I'll put a link into the notes for this program. Uh, it's a very good read, and it offers a lot of info, but uh, how else could people get in touch with you? Oh, you can email me, uh, matt at wfmu.org. Um, and if you go to the website, there's an address there if you want to write a letter. And the preferable way of communicating with me is I'd like you to uh, do a home uh, recording on a cylinder and send that to me, and I'll listen to it, and then I'll send you one back. WTBC.